to see you this weekend. We're in the second week of our series that we've entitled Meet the Gospel. And we're basing our series on the first five chapters of the book of Romans. Last week we began by talking about the doctrine of depravity. And we learned that depravity doesn't mean that mankind is as bad as it can be. It means that mankind is as bad off as it can possibly be. In other words, from God's perspective, mankind couldn't be any worse. From God's perspective, mankind couldn't get any lower. And if you were here, we said we started with depravity because you can't really appreciate the beauty of the gospel unless you can understand the hopelessness of our depravity. And I realized last weekend being weekend be Memorial Day weekend, a lot of you weren't here. You were way at the mountains and the beach. And I hope you'll go on and listen to last week's message. There's no way that I can review all of it this weekend. You're just going to have to take my word for it, okay? We are depraved, okay? We are messed up people. In fact, turn to the person beside you. Look them right in the eye. Come on. And say, I'm depraved. See, now that we all agree on that, we can move right on to the beauty of the gospel, okay? By the way, I've noticed that Christians love to toss around the word gospel, but for most of us, we have a pretty limited definition of what the gospel really is. For many of us, the gospel is, you know, I get to go to heaven when I die because I believe in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that certainly is a part of the gospel, but you got to understand, and this is what you're going to learn in this series, there's a lot more to the gospel than just the fact that we get to go to heaven when we die. So that's what we're going to be exploring. That's what we're going to be discovering. If you have your Bible this morning, open up with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. If you didn't bring your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. Uh, if you've never downloaded your Get Hope app onto your phone, you may want to do that. And you can go to where it says Message and click on Message. It will give you all the verses that we're going to look at this weekend, plus a place you can take notes. You can then email it back to yourself, and you'll have it for all eternity. Now, as we learned last weekend... The world's greatest theologian, without a doubt, the Apostle Paul wrote this book, which originally was a letter, and Paul begins by introducing himself. Now, why is that so important? Well, understand, these people in Rome, these new Christians, they have never met the Apostle Paul. Paul has never met these Christians, and he's getting ready to write them and give them news and information about how they can grow in their faith. He's going to give them biblical truth. He's going to give them doctrine that they're going to have to, 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 to be willing to incorporate into their life. In fact, he's even going to give them information about how they should be living their life. And the fact that he's never met them and they've never met him, they could obviously ask the question, well, who died and left this Apostle Paul guy in charge? To which Paul could answer, Jesus Jesus. In this case, that is the right answer. But Paul's like, you know, since I'm writing you and you don't know me, allow me to introduce myself. And you'll notice that he says in verse 1, he refers to himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And if you've read Paul's epistles, that's ex exactly the way you would expect him to introduce himself. In fact, I think that if I were to be walking the streets of Corinth where Paul wrote this from, and I would have run into the apostle Paul, and maybe I would introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Mike, the pastor of Hope Community Church. He would probably respond, hi, I'm Paul. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, right? But it's interesting, the word servant here is the Greek word doulos. It meant two things to the Greek. First of all, it, it referred to someone who was born into slavery. And then second, it referred to someone who was bound to a master to death. If you were a doulos, you were born as a slave, and you lived your entire life under a master. After all, there is no slave if there is no master. So Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I'm proud of it. And my master is Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives his credentials for writing this book. Remember, they don't know him, right? So in verse 1, it says, A Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And then in regards to his work, he says this in verse 1, And set apart for the gospel of God. Let me spend just a couple of minutes on those words called 
and set apart. First of all, the word called. Paul says, I was called to be an apostle. In other words, Paul says, listen, I was enslaved to Jesus Christ from the moment I met him on the road to Damascus. And then after I became a slave of Jesus, he revealed to me that I was going to be an apostle. Now, we hear the word apostle. In fact, we have some modern day apostles that are around us. Every once in a while, you'll run into someone who identifies themselves as I'm apostle so-and-so, which brings up a good question from a biblical perspective. What were the qualifications for being an apostle? Can just anybody be an apostle? Well, first of all, you had to have seen Jesus after he rose from the dead. That was one of the qualifications for being an apostle. And I'm just going to say that is going to disqualify most of our modern-day apostles who are identifying themselves as apostles. You had to have seen Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And we know for the apostle Paul that happened, Acts chapter 9. You can read about it yourself. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The second is, to be an apostle, you had to be able to perform miracles. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul was able to perform miracles. We know that he could heal. We know that he could discern spirits. And so he says, I was called to be an apostle. But you notice it also says that he was set apart. And if we were to just actually transliterate this Greek term, it means off horizon. And what Paul was saying is this. He's saying, for the better part of my life, when it came to my spiritual life, I was off in another sphere. I was off in another horizon. Maybe we would even use the term spiritually, I was off the grid. And that may describe a lot of you that are listening right now. You would say, yeah, before I met Jesus Christ, when it came to my spiritual life, there was nothing there. I was off the grid spiritually. Now, let me just say this. One of the problems with being off the grid, we get back on the grid, we forget what it was like to be off the grid. This December 23rd, Laura and I will have been married for 38 years. Now, think about this. I got married. Yeah, don't clap. Don't clap. Clap for her. Clap for her. Clap for her. 38 years. 38 years. You know what that means? That means I've been married a lot longer than I was single. In fact, I can barely remember what it was like not to be married. And maybe you're married. Maybe that describes you this weekend. But this is why I said that. That can happen in our lives as Christians. We can get to the place where we have been Christians for so long, we can hardly remember a time in our lives when we weren't Christians. And so we forget what it was like to be off the grid spiritually. We forget what it was like to be lost. We forget what it was like to live with the guilt and the anguish and the lack of peace and the lack of purpose. And we forget about those hurting experiences that we had to get through all by ourselves. And I tell you that is because I believe that one of the reasons that God gave us the book of Romans is simply to remind us, don't ever forget what your life was like before you met Jesus Christ. It was like you were living in a spiritual slum. And it was nasty and dirty and depressed. And there was a sense of hopelessness. And then it's almost like one day you're walking down an alley and you turn the corner and you're in Times Square, right? The lights are on, it's beautiful, it clicks, it makes sense, and everything in your life begins to change. And the same could be said of the Apostle Paul. He was off the grid. He was off horizon. But when he turned the corner and he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, his life was changed forever. Now he says, I'm in a different horizon. I'm in a different circle. And in that sense, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. And it's one thing to appreciate that that happened to the Apostle Paul, that he was called by God, that he was set apart But the good news is if you're here this weekend and you're a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is also true of you. It's true of me. You see, Jesus took each one of us from whatever circle, whatever sphere, whatever pit that we were in, and he placed us in the same circle as the Apostle Paul. I mean, that's a pretty good company. And I'll tell you, once you're in that circle, it's a pretty good place to be. 
I don't know if you caught the verses earlier in the video leading up to the message, but it's out of Romans chapter 8. The apostle Paul wrote that, but this is what he said. Once you're in the circle, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can remove you from that circle once Jesus has placed you in that circle. Now, if, if we just stopped right here, this is nothing more than Paul's bio. But when you get to verse 2, Paul gives us three facts about the gospel. And here's the first one. He says, God didn't keep the gospel a secret. He didn't keep it a secret. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets. This is what Paul was saying there. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. You can read all the way through the end of the Old Testament, get to the book of Malachi, and in every book of the Bible, you will see the promise of Jesus, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the gospel. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, he's the promised prophet. In Joshua, he's the unseen captain. In Judges, he's my deliverer. And Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, he's the promised king. Ezra and Nehemiah, the restorer of the nation. Esther, he's my advocate. And Job, he's my redeemer. In Psalms, he's my all in all. Proverbs, he's my pattern. Ecclesiastes, he's my goal. In the Song of Solomon, he's my beloved. And in all the prophets, minor and major, he's the coming prince of peace. Anywhere you look in the Old Testament, you are going to see Jesus Christ. It was promised long before it ever happened. Paul says God didn't keep it a secret. He's been telling us all along, all along it's going to happen. In fact, you go all the way back to the story of, uh, in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. Remember they knew they were naked? We talked about this last week. What happened? God killed an animal and skinned the animal and he clothed them. It, it was like a preview of a coming attraction where God was saying for atonement to be made, something's going to have to die. And God was giving us some insight to the gospel. He didn't keep it a secret. Fact number two, the gospel is based on Jesus. And what that means is this. You take away Jesus, you don't have the gospel. So over these next couple of verses, Paul talks about Jesus. He talks about his humanity in verse 3. Then he talks about his deity in verse 4. Both of them are necessary if you're going to have the gospel. It says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. So he talks about his humanity. And if you were here this past Christmas, we talked about the descendant, the family tree of Jesus. He talks about his humanity. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So he talks about his humanity and then he talks about his deity. So Paul, as he's writing, he informs these new Christians in Rome that the gospel is based on, on the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fact number three, the only way you can experience the gospel is through Jesus Christ. You will not experience the gospel through going to church, joining a small group, giving money, helping the poor, being good, being baptized. It's only through Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says in verse five, through him, and that's referring to Jesus, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Let me just say something here that you need to know throughout the book of Romans. 
Paul ministered predominantly to Gentiles. You say, well, Mike, what's a Gentile? Well, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So we all pretty much fall into that category. Now, he didn't ignore the Jews, but basically he ministered to the Gentiles. And he said, I did it for the namesake of Jesus. By the way, just so you know, every time you come across the phrase, for his namesake, you could substitute for the glory of Jesus. They're synonymous. Paul uses them interchangeably throughout all of his writings. But again, so far, this is just a theological lesson. I mean, it's like a seminary class. Good stuff. We need to know it. But it gets personal when you get to verse 6. And he shows us, he begins to make the tie of how the gospel actually impacts us, how it changes our lives. And he says to these new Christians in Rome, verse 6, And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says this, I want you to know, I don't have a corner on the gospel. You guys, you believers in Rome, you're just as called by God as I have been called. And then he says this in verse 7, I love this, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Here's a question for you. What's it take to be a saint? Don't you wish you could be a saint? Saint Mike. Every time I go by St. Michael's, I see this. I see this. Put that, put that picture up there. Where is it? There it is. That's St. Michael. I'm like, I want that. I want to steal that. I want to put that in my yard, right? Now, the problem is that wouldn't be very saintly. I don't know if that would help me become a saint. But I see that. I thought, man, what does it take to be a saint? So I actually Googled. What does it take to be a saint? And the Catholic Church helped me. Five steps to sainthood. Okay, here we go, guys. First, the person's local bishop investigates their life by gathering information from witnesses of their life and any writings they may have written. If the bishop finds them to be worthy of being a saint, then he submits the information that he gathered to the, listen to this group, the Vatican's Congregation for the Causes of Saints. That's a fun group. You know that's a fun group right there. That's somebody you want to party with. Second, second. The Vatican's congregation for the causes of saints can choose to reject the application or accept it and begin their own investigation in the person's life. Third, if the congregation for the causes of saints approves of the candidate, they can choose to declare that that person lived a heroically virtuous life. This isn't a declaration that the person is in heaven but that they pursued holiness while here on the earth. So we're making progress. Fourth step. To be recognized as someone in heaven requires that a miracle has taken place through the intercession of that person. The miracle is usually a healing. The healing has to be instantaneous, permanent, and complete, while also being scientifically unexplainable. If this is the case, a person is declared a saint. Nope. A person is declared blessed. We're making progress. Fifth. A second miracle is needed in order to declare someone a saint. The confirmation of a second miracle goes through the same scrutiny as the first. So just by a show of hand, how many of you are on your way to being a saint? Anybody? See? See? But it's interesting. If you study the Bible, you'll discover that those five things have absolutely nothing to do with being a saint. In fact, right here, Paul tells us the qualifications to be a saint. Go back to verse 6. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God. So what does it take to be a saint? We have to be called by God. Second, we have to be loved by God. 
In other words, when you respond to the calling of God, and God is in, in hot pursuit of every one of us, he desperately wants to be in a relationship with us. But when you get to that place in your life where you realize that, and you realize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to this world and he died on the cross for our sins and three days later he did rise from the day the dead to verify and validate that he was indeed the Son of God who was capable of taking away the sins of the world. And when you get to the place you realize through what Jesus Christ did, he is the one who can reconcile you back into a relationship with God. You have been called by God. When you, when you accept that call, then you are loved by God. And you become a saint. You become a saint. You want to see what saints look like? Let me show you. I got a few pictures of saints this weekend. There's Amanda the saint. She was here working at the rod. There's Henry the saint. There's Jacqueline the saint down at Ship of Zion campus. There's Jenna the saint. There's Christina the saint working with our special needs ministry. There's Wendy the saint. There's William the saint. I saw him last night. There's Jessica the saint. There's Logan the Saint over at our Mooresville campus. There's Peggy the Saint, see? And we smile a little bit because you know what? Our concept of a saint is somebody who's made, made into a statue. But I want you to understand, you will never find the statue of a saint in the Bible. Saints are living, vibrant, moving, effective believers. And if you are a Christian, if you've been called by God, and if you have been loved by God, you are a saint. Now, let me tell you why that's important. It's important because, see, when you begin to see yourself as a saint, it will change the way you live. It'll change the way you walk, the way you talk. It will change every aspect of every area of your life. That's what the gospel does. But my point is this. Saints weren't unique to Rome. You were surrounded by saints this weekend. Now, all of this is part of Paul's introduction, but then after the introduction, he begins to zero in on the church at Rome, and this is what he says in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why, Paul? Because your faith is being reported all over the world. So Paul writes this letter to these new Christians in Rome, and he says, man, everywhere I go in the world, and remember the world was smaller then, but everywhere I go, they're talking about you guys in Rome. Now let me tell you why I'm so impressed by that statement, your faith is being reported all over the world. I'm impressed, first of all, because they lived in Rome. Tacitus was an ancient historian. This is what he wrote about Rome. Into Rome flow all the things that are vile and abominable and where they are encouraged. Not only do people do it, you're encouraged to do it, right? Let me tell you something. Rome was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I'm sure if you had a chariot in Rome, you had a bumper sticker on the back of it. It says, what happens in Rome stays in Rome. I mean, it, it was about sex, drugs, rock and roll, strip joints. You did not take your children to Rome on vacation, right? But this is what I want you to understand. In that decadent, depraved environment, there was this small pocket of believers who lived for Jesus, and they were known for that. By the way, do you ever wonder what hope is known for? Every church has an image. Every church has a reputation. Every church has a personality. Do you know what we're known for? And I get this not from us, but from pastors who are in the community, people who go to other churches. If you were to ask them, they would say this. Yeah, I know what hope's about. You're a church that will love and accept people where they are and allow them to grow in their relationship. In fact, I've had pastors, I've had people from other churches say, I've sent friends, I've sent members of my church to your church because I knew that they wouldn't be loved and they wouldn't be accepted at my church. That's what we're known for. Now, in the same way, the church in Rome wasn't known for its music. 
Wasn't known for the size of its budget. Wasn't known for its cool building. It was known for its faith. And why was the church at Rome known for its faith? By the way, let me just say this. It's easy to be known for your faith when you're a small church. I remember when we started this place and there were about 30 of us. Oh, trust me, we had a lot of faith. We didn't have two nickels to rub together, right? So we had to have faith. Do you know what the enemies of faith are? Success and prosperity. Because all of a sudden, God blesses you and you get stuff you never had like this or like our new Apex facility. And then all of a sudden, we pull in the reins and we stop walking by faith because we, we want to make sure we don't lose what we have. No risky decisions because we might lose it all. See, and you stop walking by faith. I, I hope you can come to the vision night here at the Raleigh campus at 6. Tonight, I'm going to talk about how do we maintain being a church of faith where we trust not in our ability, not in our knowledge, not how well we can balance the books and make the finest, but how do we trust God and walk by faith, trusting that he is going to do what we cannot do. I'll give you this one little story. When we built this building, we couldn't afford it. In fact, people worry about debt ratio. It should never be over 105%. Listen, debt ratio in this building, 300% when we moved in, 300%. We knew we couldn't afford it. But someone gave us this piece of property and God laid it on my heart and we just said, you know, we're gonna build it and we're gonna trust that God is going to bring the people to help pay for it. We were about 2,000 people when we built this building. We're about 10,000 people now. And God, because we stepped out on faith, was faithful. I'm gonna talk about how do we remain a church of faith. It's one of our five values. I'll talk about this church in Rome. It was known for its faith. I wanna get back to that. Well, we're a church that's known for our faith. But why was it known for its faith? Verse nine, Paul says, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. So one of the reasons that this was a church of faith was because of Paul's constant prayer for this small group of Christians in Rome. Now think about this, Christians, people he had never ever met. Wow. I want you to think back over this past week. How much time did you spend praying for Hope Community Church? Maybe in your small group, you know. Our mission, our impact, our faithfulness, maybe the leadership. Or did it even cross your mind? See, Paul gives us some insight as to why this church was so dynamic. He says, man, there's people behind the scenes praying for this place. And then Paul says, I can't wait to be there with you, in verse 9. I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. And then he tells us why in verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Now, if you know anything about spiritual gifts, that's probably going to bother you. It certainly bothered me because, see, I've taught all of my life that no human being can dispense spiritual gifts. I can't give you a spiritual gift. I can't give you the gift of faith. I can't give you the gift of teaching. I can't give you the gift of mercy. Only the Holy Spirit can give a gift. And the Holy Spirit gives it to us at the moment of our salvation. The Bible talks about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he's teaching them on spiritual gifts. And after he goes through the gifts and describes the gifts, this is what he says in verse 11. And these, and he's referring to the gifts, are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Kind of, you know, makes Paul look like a spiritual gift Santa Claus. 
He said, when I come, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to, he's like, you're going to bring a big sack of spiritual gifts and give them out. But the key to understanding what Paul means is this word impart. It means to share or to give a share of something. In other words, Paul was planning on, he wasn't planning on giving them a spiritual gift. He was planning on getting there and sharing his spiritual gifts with them. For example, we know that Paul had the spiritual gift of wisdom. We know that he had the spiritual gift of knowledge. And he's planning on giving them a share of that knowledge and wisdom that God has given him. In fact, this is the purpose of the letter he wrote them. He's giving them a preview of the knowledge he's going to share with them when he arrives and is with them. And then he tells us in verse 11 why he can't wait to get there and share the gifts with them. He says, first of all, is to make you strong. And second, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He says, I can't wait to get to Rome personally to meet you so that that can happen. By the way, let me just say this. That lets us know what should happen every weekend when we gather together like this to worship. Two things. One, we should be made stronger in our faith. And second, we should be encouraged. Now, I know that you can worship outside of here, and I hope you do. Because statistics show, and they hold out here at Hope, here at Hope Community Church, that the average committed Christian only goes to church 1.8 times a month. That means that you, you miss church more than you attend church. As recently, I was talking to someone. I said, how many weekends a week do you think you go to church? He said, well, I'm here at least 40 weekends. I said, go, go back and check your last year's calendar. And he came back and says, wow, I was here 23 weekends. See, I think deep down inside, we think we're here more than we are, but you're probably not here that much, right? And so I hope you do worship outside of church, and I know you do. In fact, last Sunday morning, because so many of you were away uh, for the weekend, we yeah, depraved people. Anyway, um, don't, it, it wasn't funny last weekend when I was here preaching to an empty room, but anyway, anyway. Um, we decided at the last minute on Sunday morning that we, you know, the communications team said, hey, you want to live stream the service? Music, everything, let's just put it out there. And I said, well, that's great, but how will anybody know it? He said, we'll just put something on Facebook saying we're going to live stream it. Over 1,100 people watched it in just a few minutes. So I know that you do that. Now, let me tell you, that is a great feature. It's a nice convenient, convenience. But this is what I want you to know. There are certain things that we only benefit from when we gather together. Paul lists two of them. Our faith is made stronger, and we're encouraged. That won't happen watching through a computer screen. See, our faith is made stronger and we're encouraged. I'm telling you, every week I walk away from this place after being here with you, think I am not alone. I can do this. I can be the person that God has called me to be, right? In fact, I endure the week just to get to the weekend. I don't know if you know what my week is like. It's a little bit stressful being over a church like this. In fact, I had, a, I had some parents come up to me and said, hey, we have a middle school son. said he wants to be a pastor. After watching you, he wants to be a pastor when he grows up. And I was like, I thought it was a big compliment. And I said, why did he come to that conclusion? They said, well, you only have to work one day a week. I'm like, I'll punch that kid in the throat. I'll tell you, that's what I'll do next time I see him, right? But anyway, you know what my week is like? I deal with budget cuts, hiring freezes, can't spend any money. I spend my week trying to get finance team and elders and can we have just a little bit of faith? Can we trust God just a little teeny weeny bit? Right, yeah. I spend my week surrounded by millennials <laughs> who all are smarter than me and take every opportunity they catch me in the hallway to remind me. That, that's my week. 
just like you, I spend my week in meetings where absolutely nothing gets accomplished. You know what I'm talking about? You know, there's an old song we used to sing, like a mighty army moves the church of God. Mm -mm. No, like a mighty glacier, see, moves the church of God. I can't wait for the weekend. People say, man, I feel sorry for you on the weekend. Don't feel sorry for me except Saturdays during football season. Then you can feel sorry for me, right? But I get jacked up being around you guys because I know once I leave, I'm going to leave stronger in my faith and I'm going to leave encouraged by you. Paul is looking forward to that when he gets to Rome. He wants to be with them. He wants that encouragement to take place. But see, he also felt obligated to be there. Verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And then he adds in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I love that verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here at Hope, we have six goals, six marks, six character, or five characteristics of someone who should be growing in their faith. It's how you can measure how you're doing spiritually and becoming a disciple. One is you live obediently. In other words, as you discover God's truth, you incorporate them into your life. You don't try to justify them so you don't have to do them, right? You incorporate them in their life. Second, you serve selflessly. Third, you give generously. Fourth, you connect intentionally in the community. That's why we have small groups. And then fifth, you share willingly. You share your story of how Jesus Christ has changed your life. And let me tell you, Jesus Christ has changed your life through the gospel. And so I want to wrap it up this weekend by answering three questions about the gospel. Here's the first one. What does the word gospel mean? It means good news. That's all it means. It means good news. If you live in the first century, it described anything that was going on in your life that was exciting. If you're a student and you pass the course, right, you see the gospel, the good news would be, wow, I passed, right? It's the gospel regarding your education. For some of you, it may even be a miracle, but, but I passed, right? When you have a baby, what's the gospel? It's a boy. It's a girl. That's the good news. That's the gospel. About 12 years ago, our oldest son got married. And leading into the wedding that weekend, Laura said, honey, I think I might be pregnant. I'm like, is this a sick joke? Two reasons. One, our oldest son is getting married. Two, well, let's just say I got put out to pasture a long time ago, right? Now, you have fun explaining that to your kids on the way home, who should be in Kid City, by the way, okay? Right? So I'm just kind of ignoring her, like, oh, she's just stressed out about the wedding, da 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 da, da you know, women. And, uh, but don't, that's gonna get me email. Sunday. Sunday, the day after the wedding, she comes walking in the door with a little bag from Walgreens. I said, what's that? Pregnancy test. What? You're serious? She goes upstairs. I am pacing downstairs, just back and forth, back and forth. She finally came back and said, nope, I'm good. I'm like, gospel, good news, good news, right? See, now, what's the gospel? What's the good news concerning Jesus is this. Our sins have been atoned for and we can be forgiven. That's the good news. That's what we share willingly. God welcomes sinners. God loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. God accepts sinners who come to him by faith in Jesus. That is the gospel. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. I mean, are you ashamed when you have a baby? No. Everywhere you go, you talk about it. Are you ashamed when your kid wins an award? No. You, you put those obnoxious stickers all over the back of your minivan, right? 
But think about this. Society has conned us into thinking that we should be ashamed of God's good news, that it's narrow, it's big, it's exclusive. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm telling you, it is the only good news that can change a life. It is the only hope for changing the world. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus redeems sinners. Jesus changes lost, hurting, hopeless people, which would describe all of us here this weekend. And Paul says, man, when I get to Rome, I am excited about preaching it. I'm excited about sharing it with you. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, which brings up the obvious question. Are you in your sphere of influence? Do you share the great news of what God has done in your life through the gospel? Second question, what is the gospel? Paul says it's power. It's power. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. The Greek word is dunamis most closely associated to dynamite. Problem is, dynamite blows people to bits, right? You don't want to blow people to bits when when you share your your faith with them. I think a better word would be dynamic. I think it's better than dynamite. See, dynamite, that's something that's loud, overt, seen. Dynamic is something that's silent. It's internal. And just so you know, there's, there's an internal force that goes on around our campuses every weekend, whether you're in Mooresville, Holly Springs, Agape down in Port-au-Prince, Ship of Zion, Southeast Raleigh, or even here at the Raleigh campus. And it is the dynamic force of God as he's working in our lives. Some of you sitting here right now, you're facing struggles like you have never experienced in your life. Maybe it's relational, maybe it's financial, maybe it's your career. But right now, right now, even as we're meeting together, the dynamic force of the gospel is working on your life, changing your life, transforming your life. See, that's the good news. That's the good news. Third question. What does the gospel do? Verse 17. For the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness, by the way, that word righteousness, and we're going to talk more about it over the next couple of weeks Righteousness literally means a right standing before God. So this says, the gospel stands you right before God. That's what the Greek says. The gospel stands you right before God. Verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. I think the Living Bible does a great job with this. It says, it is a faith proposition from start to finish. It is all about faith. It's your faith that saves you. It's your faith that keeps you. It's your faith that grows you. It's your faith that's gonna allow you to spend all eternity with God in heaven. And I think that's why Paul said in verse 17, the righteous, those who have a right standing before God will live by faith, not by rules, not by laws, not by regulations, not by five things you should do, 10 things you shouldn't do. The righteous will live by by faith. By the way, that was the spark of the Reformation. When that exploded in Martin Luther's mind, that's what began the Reformation. The righteous will live by faith. Now, I want to leave you with two truths or takeaways that come out of what we talked about this weekend. And here's the first one the gospel requires a response. God did not give us the gospel just so we could sit around and study it or even understand it. You can memorize the book of Romans and miss the gospel. You can memorize the Bible and miss the gospel. The gospel requires a response, and the response is described in verse 16 as believing. It is the power of salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Believes. But let me show you the contrast, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, if righteousness means a right standing before God, this would be those who do not have a right standing before God. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And what that means is this. When it comes to the gospel of God, you got a choice. You can choose to accept it, to receive it into your life, to, to respond to the calling of God in your life, or you can choose to reject it. And if you choose to believe it, the result is you're reconciled back into a relationship with God. You have a right standing with God. But you got to understand, if you choose to reject it, you will face and you will experience the wrath of God. See, God loves us and respects us too much not to give us a choice. So he says, I'm going to give you the choice. But you got to get to that place. It's like we sang earlier. My hope is built on nothing less than my good works. Uh-uh. My hope is built on nothing less than my church attendance. Uh-uh. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That through his blood, I now have a right standing before God. Here's the second thing I get out of this passage. Our response to the gospel determines our destiny. In other words, you're either going to be reconciled back to God and have a right standing before God, or you will face the wrath of God. You know, Jesus, I think, made one of the most interesting and controversial statements in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. This is what he said. I didn't come to bring peace. So we don't think of Jesus that way. He said, that's not why I came. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Well, let's think about that. What does a sword do? A sword divides a sword forces you to make a decision. If you're standing in front of someone and they have a sword, so you got to decide, am I going to surrender or am I going to fight? And I'm telling you, when you come to the reality and the truth of the gospel, you have to choose, am I going to accept it or am I going to reject it? You accept it. Oh, that's cool. You experience the love of God. You reject it. You experience the wrath of God you got to decide. He's going to force you to make a decision. You will either surrender his call or you'll fight and you'll lose. Now, maybe for the first time you're like, oh, now I get it. It's not about how good I am. It's about the gospel. I want you to know every weekend, if you go out, turn to the left here at the Raleigh campuses at all of our campuses, there's a next step booth, and there are people there who would love nothing more than to spend a few minutes with you, making sure you understand and you get that chance to respond to the calling of God. It's a good day to do it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you that while we were depraved and had zero desire to be in a relationship with us, with you, you wanted to be in a relationship with us. So you gave us your only son. To die so that we could be reconciled back into. Somebody had to pay. And you chose your most beloved possession. Help us begin to understand the gospel. It has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with a relationship. Made possible with you through what Jesus did for us. It's not about what we do. It's about what's already been done. Help us to come to terms with that in this series. In your name we pray, amen.